Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. The World of Pagetius. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark. And I'm Thumbs. And we are coming here today to speak to you about the world of Vegetius. We are getting ready to start our new book, which is the Military Institutions of the Romans. And uh, we're going to kind of frame that for you a little bit today in this episode. But before we do that, we want to uh, kind of apologize if we sound a little raspy or a little out of it. As much of the West Coast is experiencing, we are kind of inundated with smoke at the moment. And while we are both trying to mitigate it to the best of our abilities with air filters and uh, tea and, and such things, there's only so much we can do. Yeah, there's supposed to be mountains that I can see outside, and I just, I can't see them anymore. They're... Yep. They're gone. No mountains. <laughs> no mountains. I mean, uh, the word Montana actually comes from a word for mountain, but uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't know it uh, right right at the moment. So yeah, we just uh, asked that you... I, I turned off my air filter this time because uh, we were doing the editing for this last episode and it was driving me crazy. I'm sure you guys aren't nearly as nitpicky as I am, but uh, yeah, it was, it was driving me nuts. So I figured we'd try it without this time around. Hope that the air is pure enough already. At least we're indoors doing it, like... Yeah, yeah, at least we're not like trying to do this on a mountaintop or something like that at the moment. That would be rancid. But yeah, we wanted to send out a thanks real quick. We have our Patreon up finally. It is live, uh, as you would have heard in the script that we finally have at the very beginning of the episodes. And we have some some patrons. I mean, within like 24 hours of the Patreon going live, these guys were already signed up wanting to contribute. So again, thank you guys so much. For, uh, for believing in the show and for, for wanting to support us and what we do. You're going to be getting your your uh, your prizes here uh, in a little bit. We're going to be sending out those stickers to those of you who got stickers. And uh, the Discord is up and ready to go for those of you who are wanting to participate in the oh, Discord. Yeah. I've been posting stuff on there. But yeah, a, a big thank you to Carly, Joshua, Shelby, and Adrian. You guys are amazing. And uh, we, we really appreciate the, the patronage. Uh, and we're going to keep up the good work to, to make sure we're worth it. Speaking of keeping up the good work, I needed to make a correction. One of the things we like to do on the show is, is uphold a certain degree of intellectual integrity. And that means that if we get something wrong, we go back and make sure that we, we correct that so that we're not putting bad information out there. Um, and this was uh, concerning two episodes ago when we were talking about Durdamarian and the Horde. Uh, I had talked about a particular tradition called the Witch Doctor tradition in which they get up and they're talking about all these stories that came before and they're adding their own to the mythos. I had wrongly uh, attributed this tradition to Horde as a whole. I was reminded that this is actually a goblin tradition specifically. Now, all of the Witch Doctors happen to be Horde members, but it is not a Horde specific 
tradition. So I, I just wanted to make sure I got that out there. Uh, cause again, we don't want to be putting bad information out onto the airwaves. So we're, we're sorry to you hordlings that we, uh, we may have offended with our misinformation and hopefully we have redeemed ourselves. Man, I, I had to do a correction on general nerdery last week. And there's always this moment when you're listening back and you realize you said something wrong where you're like, Oh, Oh Gut no. Punch. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it was like with that one, uh, the one where we were talking about the civil war and I had wrongly, uh, talked about, West Point and confused it with the Citadel. I like, I was sitting there, we got done with it. I was like, I, I feel like I said something wrong. I'm not quite sure what it was. It took my father, uh, saying, Hey, by the way, this was slightly not correct. And I was like, Oh no, you're right, dad. Oh, that bothered you for like a week and a half before we got to fix it. I'm glad we got to fix it. That's one of the nice things about being able to put these out semi-frequently is we can actually make corrections. Uh, maybe not as quickly as we would like to, but we are able to make them. So again, Goblins, witch doctors, they're their own thing. Absolutely cool, nonetheless. And I, 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 I still am looking forward to seeing many more of them. Please don't put golf balls under my tent again, Horde. I remember my very <laughs> first Chaos Wars. I, I, that uh, was a long I, time I, I don't, ago. I don't need that in my life in these days. My back is, I couldn't handle it. <laughs> the, the good-natured, slightly irritable humor that you saw the next morning would not be there. Like, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm too no, old for that. There would be the ambulance at this point. Uh, I'm over 30. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Yeah. So the next uh, order of business is we have finally closed the polls on the next book after Vigedius. Uh I had kept them open a little bit longer than I had intended to uh, because of the fact that it was dead even there for a while. Management of Savagery and uh, Che Guevara's On Guerrilla Warfare were neck and neck, and I didn't want to end the poll before we had a clear winner, lest we have a situation like we did with Vigedius and Frederick. Uh, and so finally, the the... The gridlock was broken and we have a winner. We are going to be doing the management of savagery by Abu Bakr Naji after we do Vegetius. And so that's also probably going to include some other jihadist uh, writings on the subject as well, just because the management of savagery is relatively small and they're kind of in the same uh, group of, of knowledge. So uh, it's going to kind of be a combination series of episodes and we're looking forward to sharing. That's some literature that I think people are, are even more unfamiliar with than some of these older texts is uh, some of these writings that have come, even even during our current age, from groups that we've been fighting against. Uh, are we doing, what, what was it, you said that Castro being the second place? Are we doing that after? Uh, no, we're going to do a revote at some point. Like after we do Management of Savagery, we're going to start going back and looking over some of the uh, books that were not selected in previous voting and start going back over those. Because we don't want, just because, uh, you know, On War didn't get voted in that one time doesn't mean that we're never going to cover it. never happening. We're never doing it. No. Well, I'm sure you'd like that, but... Uh... Yeah, I've seen that book. That is a big book. That's a, it could be a weapon. It's a big one. Bring it on. It's a weapon, Yeah. Phone book versus on war. Go. <laughs> so yeah, we're going to be doing the management of savagery. Looking forward to doing that a bit on asymmetrical warfare. And speaking of international matters, I figured it had been a while since we touched in and kind of talked about our metrics. This is not to say that I don't check them like every single day, every day. because I am so excited to watch these numbers jump. I'm a, I'm a statistician in my spare time. I enjoy statistics and probability. And so I, I like watching numbers behave. And, and so just watching, uh, it just, just, just seeing this show grow in terms of numerics has been a lot of fun for me. And in terms of hard numbers, this is what we got. We have over 4,500 total downloads at this point, which, uh, I feel pretty good about. That's uh, that's pretty awesome. We would have more than that because we lost all our old numbers when we switched servers. 
True. True. Uh, yeah. So that, I mean, uh, not that, a ton more, should but technically, more. Maybe a hundred or two higher. Um, uh, we've got around 90 weekly listeners. So to those of you goobers who are, who are downloading this within the week that it comes out, thank you. That's so <laughs> that's, cool. That's oh awesome. God, I love that so much. Yeah, it makes me feel good that you guys are eager to to get access to the information. We're certainly eager to share it. So it's it's wonderful that we're able to make this connection. And then we are international. As I've said before, we are in the United States of America. We're in the United Kingdom, Germany, Australia, Sweden, Canada, France, Ireland, and other. I'm not sure what other is. It could just be uh, uh, numbers of downloads that are too small for the the service to count. It could be countries that aren't necessarily like categorized. Uh, you guys could be beaming down from a spacecraft, in which case, welcome to the planet Earth. Tyler was telling me about this. There's no like uh, industry-wide standard for record how you record, like what downloads you're getting and like your metrics for podcasting. So there's a host of reasons why a country could be on other the other okay this is the one that actually kind of blows me the way the most the one that makes me like the most Ooh, hey we're doing good i knew we were gonna get some listeners i knew we'd get at least a few beyond our friends and family which we've succeeded i didn't think we were going to get that much outside of the country especially since i think of this as Bellagarth primarily you know because i don't play 40k um but so seeing this in multiple countries that our our thoughts are uh, uh, worth listening to, just mm. and and Bellagarth uh, may may be fairly America centric, but the idea of uh, like medieval combat is certainly not. They've got that all over the place. And I, actually, one of the fellows I've been speaking to from uh, uh, France, I think it is, he participates in like a Viking reenactment that's a lot more similar to Hema uh, than it would be to what we do. But but again, the the lessons are the same. Yeah, it's just cool to me that how much of this was able to translate. I wasn't I wasn't sure of how much that was going to happen, but seeing you know, UK, Germany, Australia, Sweden, other, uh, reinforced that to me. But yeah, so this is exciting for us. Uh, welcome again to uh, all of our international listeners, and to those of you who perhaps listening from a spaceship above the planet Earth, we appreciate your your time and your attention. Lastly, before we get into this, uh, the meat and potatoes of this one, I've been doing a couple of things 40k related, not playing games, mind you, because uh, the social distancing thing is still fairly important to me and my family. But uh, I picked up the Necromunda video game. And it was I'd like this, we're recording this only a few days after it came out. And so while I've been very much enjoying the game, and it's the closest thing to 40k that I'm kind of able to do at the moment, it is a little glitchy. There's a few bugs that need to be ironed out for sure, uh, but the gameplay itself what are you is playing really cool. this game on uh, Xbox, but it's on PS4 and uh, uh, PC as well, uh, so you can. It's all over the place. But any new game is going to have its little bugs. Any new game is going to have its little glitches, and I'm sure within the first couple of patches, those are going to be ironed out, much like they were for Inquisitor. And uh, I'm just looking forward to continue playing it. You get to have your, make your own gang, customize the different people. Thumbs, you're next, by the way. I've been making uh, members of my gang based on people, very similar to like I did for Dynasty Warriors. I'm just missing people. So I'm creating familiar-looking characters in my games to pretend I'm hanging out with people. But yeah, so you're, you're you're next on my list to to be in a gang warfare setting. So uh, prepare for that. From a storyline aspect, this is one of the more interesting things in 40k for me, because when we see 40k, we see, you know, the giant spaceships and the super 
soldiers and the super duper soldiers and you know giant pyramid ships of robot zombies we don't usually see the average person or like close to the average person on their planet right right and that like it's, it's kind of the same reason and like when i first got into this particular setting it was uh kind of a a, a shoot off of when i was really into like gobbling up all of the imperial guard novels i could find because in that same vein, like I really enjoyed the Imperial Guard novels because yes, I, I mean, I love the Horus Heresy books. I love the Space Marine books. I love things about the uh, Adeptus Sororitas and the Adeptus Mechanicus. It all makes me very, very happy. But there's just something so human about the Imperial Guard stories. And they really do a good job in, in, in really kind of getting across the terror that a, uh, that a regular human would face in this galaxy. And in the same way, like the regular people who are just trying to scratch out a living in this underhive of Necromunda, it makes for some very interesting stories, some very human stories uh, that, are, that are just good. It's one thing that Star Wars has kind of always had on 40K of having, you know, not just the big space battles between the Empire and the Rebellion and the Star Destroyers, but also Jabba the Hutt, the Gang Lord, and Han Solo being, you know, just low-level smuggler living his life the more that you get the wider variety of the world the better your storytelling is going to be because the more options you have and the more complete your world feels one of my favorite uh star wars movies is solo in fact i would probably say at this point solo is my favorite star wars movie and there's no jedi in it i don't know if it's my favorite but i will watch that movie any day of the week yeah i love solo oh my god they, they did great with that one and speaking of the Imperial Guard, there's that there's that scene in it where I'm where I'm, where you sit there and watch it and like I know there's a meme about this. You guys who are on the the 40k boards will know all about this, but there's a a meme go, like of of the a picture of Han Solo when he's on the battlefield uh, with the with the Imperial forces and he's got that like look of shock. And the meme is just "Welcome to the Imperial Guard." Uh, <laughs> and I, yeah, and that I just loved it. it up well. Um, but yeah, so Necromunda is fun. If you're if you're missing some turn-based strategy and, and looking to build your own gang who can have gas masks, by the way, remember to stay safe. Uh, all my guys got their face masks on. But yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. And then the only other thing 40K related that I've done recently is I sold my demons. Because, uh, uh, I mean, the issue there was, um, of course, like much, most of you, I'm sure, uh, we're, we're trying to be wise with our, with our money right now, make sure that we're saving as much as we can and uh, tucking it away because who knows what the future holds at this point. But in the same, like all this new Primaris stuff has been coming out and I'm like, yeah, oh God, I need some, you know, I need, I need some repulsors. I need some eliminators. Uh, uh, I just, I need to get some new Primaris things. And so I was looking at my armies thinking, which one could I sell? And my demons, while they are gorgeous, uh, don't get me wrong, I love the Zanich demon models. They are they are positively gorgeous. Two things were kind of the reason I chose them. The first one was uh, in terms of making a story about them, because I like to kind of have a backstory for my armies. It makes it more fun for me to play. The problem with making a story when it comes to demons is I have no idea what goes on inside a demon's head. You know, demons are not bound by the concept of mortality. Demons are, are stuff of imagination. They're stu- like a, a figment of energy that doesn't have to worry about life or death. It just fades back into the warp. And so without that motivation, I, I have no idea how to like be inside that headspace, I guess. And then the other part of it is uh, they're basically a one-trick pony for me. I'm sure there's other ways of playing Zneech demons, but the way I like to play them is I'd put a, a maximum size group of flamers in Deep Strike. I would put my warlord who had the, uh, there's a warlord ability that gives you a reroll ones to a wound. 
put him in, you drop him out, you hit him with a psychic ability that gives him a plus one, two wound. So they're wounding on twos or threes, rerolling ones on a flamer attack. It's pretty sweet. But with the new deep strike rules, that trick is not going to be nearly as useful. And so uh, all these things considered, I sold my demons, long story short. And picked up some primary space marines, which I'm sure you on the internet are not pleased about because everybody's been gnashing their teeth about all this Primaris stuff, all this new Primaris stuff. I like it because like part of the reason I got into 40K was because I thought Space Marines were cool. So that that doesn't bother me at all. But I'm also looking forward to some other stuff. You know, I, I play Orcs too. Love to see some new Orc models. I'm assuming these super duper soldiers are kind of uh, overpowering the Space Marine armies again. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, there's Space Marines 2.0. Uh, basically, and, and and a lot of the way, like the, the new rules coming out seem a little overpowering, but we haven't seen a lot of the new rules for any of the other codexes, so I'm going to wait and see. Um, obviously, they're going to be a little OP right now, but once we start to see, you know, other other non-Imperium codexes coming out, I'm, I'm, I'm certain we're going to see some more balance with it. That's the interesting thing I never really knew about 40k of how they keep the ongoing story going to, like, keep the interest and, like, you can see the armies get better and worse over time as like a plot thing, as well as just a whoops, we accidentally overpowered them. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, and then of course there's the almighty dollar. Like we, not everything games workshop does is because of altruistic, um, artistry or anything like that. There's also the fact that, you know, space Marines are their best selling product. Um, and they're also the easiest to design in, in terms of vectoring and molds. Um, Space Marines are just, they're, they're easier to work with. In ter- like if you think about like Eldar models. A details. A lot of detail, a lot of works of art. Like I would not want to be on the vectoring team for that. Like <laughs> I would be pulling my hair out constantly trying to be like, we need it to be spindly and delicate looking, but not just snap the second somebody puts pressure on it. Like, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stuff that goes into designing some of those other stuff. Whereas again, like a primary space marine is just a block of plastic with eyeballs. It's easy to churn those out. <laughs> Sometimes. Not, not to, not to poo poo games workshop or anything like that, but I absolutely understand some of the decisions they make. And then we also, uh, the, the, if you want to go on our Facebook, I think by this point, two weeks from now, we'll still have the pick your favorite helm, uh, thing going for thumbs next project where he's going to be doing his next helm based off of a design that we have on our Facebook page. That is going to go until I'll be honest. I'm not entirely sure when it's going to go until I have an open space and go, that'd be a good project to work on right now. Uh, and whoever has the most at the time wins. Easy enough. So if you want your vote to be counted and you want to, uh, you know, make sure that the, uh, the, a cool design, they're all cool designs, but the design you think is coolest, uh, gets made and chosen. It's been kind of fun because there is, I think three historical ones and two or three, uh, 40k ones and, you know, keeping track of which ones are getting the most likes and stuff. And some people are just picking like all the 40k ones They're like, I don't care which, I just want it to be 40k and others are picking just the historical ones right as long as it's not 40k as long as it's like actual history i don't care which one so I, it's it's fun watching the divide in our uh listener base well if you fall into one of these two camps you will be disappointed if you fall into one of these two camps you will be excited and we're not going to say who is who yet oh yeah because we don't know but apart from that, I think that's all I got for an intro, Thumbs. What about you? Now, we got a lot to talk about. It might be a good idea to uh, jump into it. Yeah, so let's begin uh, first by giving you guys a chronology with our brief timeline.
doing this entire timeline of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, you know, one of the most famous moments in history in a eh, 20-minute to half-hour range is might legitimately be criminal of us to attempt. Yeah, no, this is normally a semester-long course, and that's usually like a cram course. Like, it, 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 that's one that people are really stressed out about. So, yeah, it's, it's a highly ambitious and probably bite off more than we can chew uh, idea to think that we can cover this uh, with any sort of succinctness uh, in an hour and a half. Uh, to really drive home how much there is, peop- I mean, again, obviously people have been studying this since it happened. I mean, even just the date of the fall of the Roman Empire is uh, very argued about to this day. Uh, to really drive home how much information there is, I read about this for like two weeks, and when I messaged uh, Malark here, I was like, hey, I'm a little like uncertain of where to tackle this. And you're like, oh yeah, me too. I mean, I don't even know how to bring up the Christian parts, and I hadn't studied that at all. But uh, because of my training, as, as I've, I think I've spoken on here before, I w- went to school for religious studies, and one of my particular areas of interest was early Christian history. So around the time that we're studying right now, and, and previous to that, uh, was a particular area of fascination for me. So uh, for me, you, you cannot study the decline of the Roman Empire without studying the rise of Christianity. They, they, they complement one another. Oh, and as soon as you mentioned it, I'm like, oh, of course, that makes perfect sense. Why have I not been reading about that for two weeks? But there's just so much stuff. These guys did so much stuff. Yeah. And the, and the timeline that we're about to present to you right here is a massively condensed one. We actually went a week over. We were supposed to record last week, and then we pushed it back. And this is, of course, irrelevant to you guys because the shows come out every two weeks, regardless of what we're doing with our schedule. It does make us panic a little bit. Yeah. Uh, um, but, uh, you know, I spent these last three weeks just, like, not so much trying to get more information for this episode, but trying to figure out what information to cut. And those of you who are historians who have read in this time period, I am sure that you guys are going to be listening over this and you're going to say, oh my gosh, you know, the, he left out this, he left out this. Um, and, and while I acknowledge that this is an incomplete record, this is, again, what we want this show to be in particular to the scholarly respect is a jumping off point. You know, we don't want to be putting bad information out there, but if we're talking about something that you find fascinating, but that we don't go into as much detail as you would like, the internet is right there, folks. Uh, and, 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 uh, you can, you can go and learn about this for yourself for free. And it, it's pretty cool. Uh, this is one, I mean, to really drive home that point, like I, I know most of the stuff we're talking about, but anytime we've covered an area, I'm like, oh man, I have to teach about something that's not my wheelhouse. Like every time, you know, oh, we're doing Rome. I'm like, oh, finally my wheelhouse. We're doing the fall of Rome. Oh man. <laughs> like Republic. Sure. I'd be way more on top of you there, but because there is so much accessible information out there and it's so easy to get, even someone who is super not trained in any of this stuff is able to learn it well enough for all of this pretty easily. Yeah. To get a passable understanding of it. Um, to, and no doubt. And again, especially if you're doing this for fun, if you're not doing like, please, please do not write any papers no. uh, based on what we're saying. Again, we try to give you factual information, but I'm sure that your teachers are going to be looking for less Warhammer 40k references and more scholarly references. More sources. Yeah. Yeah. 
Whereas like, we don't necessarily talk, we talk about like our primary source on this show, but like, I don't go over all like the dozens of books that I'm reading and the dozens of web websites that I'm visiting in order to prep for the notes. I just couldn't like with the whole show would just be taught, be me talking about my references, which is uh, not a show anybody wants to listen to. Which is kind of my favorite part of history in some ways, because you'll start with, oh, we're going to read this book now, or, oh, we're going to... I got really into the Akkadian Empire because I started listening to something about the Greco-Persian Wars. And it just, like, you're like, oh, this, and then I'll mention that, and you'll be like, oh, what is that? And you'll go off that, and then next thing you know, you've been reading random Wikipedia articles for the past six hours. And on a completely different subject. When I'm first starting to, like, try to get my ideas together, I definitely go on some rabbit holes, and I definitely did here, too. Like I said, I had to... I had so many tabs open for this particular uh, episode and I had to trim so much out of these notes in order to, to make it even partially fitting. But, um, but yeah, so this is what we have. And, uh, and this is a partial timeline of kind of the rise of Christianity and the decline and fall of Rome in the fourth and fifth centuries. But yeah, so let's, let's get right into it. The first one we want to talk about is right at the beginning, 301 current era. Armenia is the first kingdom to adopt Christianity as their state religion. Now, this is a big deal because for the 300 years prior to this, Christians had been mostly just persecuted. Um, it, 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 was, it was not a very popular religion when it first cut out. The Romans and other, and other groups were very, very much out for blood when it came to early Christians. And so they had a lot to deal with. And so what this represents in 301 is the first time that the religion actually gained any sort of like legitimacy in terms of a, a large state supporting it, or it, it, this is a, like a large state, but like a state period supporting it and giving it kind of safe harbor, this is significant. Um, and, and so that's one of the reasons we wanted to talk about it here is, is this is the first time that you see Christianity given any sort of legitimacy at all. So I want you to remember this date, 301. And then between 306 and 337, Constantine the Great ends the persecution of Christians across the empire. This is known as the Constantine Shift, and Constantinople is, is called the new capital at this time. So this, this shift that we're talking about is, isn't just a, an official policy shift, but it's also an acknowledgement that a growing number of people in the empire were Christian. A number of state officials uh, were, were, were becoming Christian. It was, it was just an increasingly popular religion amongst the empire. And so this constant persecution of it was just interfering with Roman business. And, and so Constantine becomes the first one, not even a Christian himself at this point, by the way, um, becomes the first one to end persecution of Christians. He does convert later, I think, though, yes? Yes, right before he dies, uh, he, he, uh, he converts uh, officially. But at this time in his life, he hadn't. But this, this overall policy shift over the course of his reign, it, it, it's really quite quite special. And it's really quite, it's something to the, uh, it doesn't happen very often in history that you have this kind of transfer of power occurring in this way and in such an official capacity. And, and also the shift to Constantinople, like this is, this is something that's been going on for like the, the capital of Rome, you know, it's been sacked a few times at this point in history. And, and the actual where Rome is in terms of borders and in terms of trying to control, it's, it's actually kind of, inconvenient in a lot of ways, whereas Constantinople is a, a massive city that was built on a, a like a, a causeway, like there's a, a, a canal going straight through it. So in terms of industry and commerce, like it, it splits uh, the Eastern and Western world. It's right there. Very well defended, 
great location in terms of like visibility and all that sort of thing. And so it just, there was a lot of perks to switching it to Constantinople. But this wasn't the first time that Constantinople has been, had been used because up until this point, like the empires split a couple of times. But, and, and so this isn't the first time that we see it, but this is the, like, this is when the official capital is moved over there. This is, these people will continue to refer to themselves as Romans for the rest of their career, but this is a acknowledgement really of how big Rome has gotten at this point. Right. Cause if you think about like, even, even just the issues with running a country, the size of America right now, and we've got telecommunications and we've got the internet in order to like instantaneously transport orders and updates across the nation. Uh, we, we have trouble with command and control. I'm talking to you over a magic box right now. Right. Like, and right. you know, uh, Rome didn't have anything like that. Like the fastest you could go was the speed of a horse. Mm-hmm. Or a ship. Or a ship. Uh, but, but even but, then, so. like, if you were trying to get from one end of the empire to the other, or even from one end of the empire to Rome, like, you're talking about several weeks, months worth of travel in order to do that. Like, that's that's not expedient. And so, so like, again, this this multiple capitals thing that had occurred uh, was uh, it, as much administrative as it was defensive. Now, help me out here. Is this where they have officially shifted to the, like, Eastern and Western Roman Empire, or am I getting ahead of myself again? You're getting ahead of yourself Whoops, just sorry. a little bit sorry, sorry, at this sorry. point. Uh, we, we don't quite have the, the, like, this is still just the Roman Empire, but uh, the, the, the capital is no longer Rome. It's, it's Rome outside of Rome. So Constantine is also significant because in 325, he calls the first of the ecumenical councils, the Council of Nicaea, uh, to end the Arian controversy. So uh, before we get into this a little bit, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about what early Christianity looked like. So what we know of Christianity right now is largely a Trinitarian interpretation of it, because that's what made it into the Nicene Creed during this time of kind of solidification and um, categorization of the religion. But prior to that, prior, like in these centuries, uh, like you had all sorts of different beliefs concerning Christ, concerning God, concerning uh, the nature of the Holy Spirit, concerning life after death. Uh, Like there were all these, like we would not have recognized early Christianity uh, based on on what we know of it today. Uh, because there were just so many different interpretations of what was going on. And, and these different interpretations were not just uh, casual disagreements or, or you, you have your way of doing things and I have my way of doing things. They would evolve into brawls. They would evolve into violence. They would evolve into lack of cooperation between dioceses. Um, like it was, it was an issue. And these, these, so these, these conflicts, these, these um, kind of intersect conflicts were causing issues for the greater empire as a whole. And so Constantine sits down the, the elders of these various sects and he says, you guys figure it out. We need one version of Christianity that you all can agree to so we can stop having these arguments and we can just move forward. So you guys are going to sit down and start talking about this. Now, it, and of course, I'm sure he would have liked it all to be worked out in 325. Uh, these councils continued for quite some time after this, but this was the very first one. And uh, it was to end a particular controversy, which was the the Arian controversy. Or controversy. Um, now, when I say Arian, the spelling of this is not A-R-Y-A-N. So we're not talking about white supremacists. Uh, Arius, A-R-I-U-S, so the same thing here, A-R-I-A-N. Arius was a cleric from, uh, again, this time period, and he was preaching a a doctrine that was kind of radically different than what was 
accepted at that time. And in particular, this was in concern of whether or not the son was co-substantial with the father. When, we're t when you think about the Trinity, for those of you who don't, who haven't studied Christianity, Christians believe uh, by and large in the Trinity. The Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. Father, Son, Holy Ghost, correct. But the uh, particular, like again, there are a lot of topics that have been discussed over the course of these councils, but at this one in particular, it was over the idea of, is the Son co-substantial with the Father? Which is to say, has the Son always existed with the Father, or does the Son come from the Father, was created by the Father, and therefore the Father would have existed without the Son at some point? And so again, like you wouldn't think, like we're talking about this right now and it'd be like, oh, that's an interesting question. But at the time it was the source of a very, very heated and violent controversy. And so this was uh, the, t so the, they, they, they weighed in on obviously that uh, God and the son are co-substantial, even before Christ was physically on the planet, he was, you know, floating around somewhere with God, the father, he was, he's always been there with God the Father is what was decided here. I probably went more into that than I needed to, but I figure a lot of you probably, this is the first you're hearing about it. I, I, I know a lot of Christians. Half of it, yeah. I know, I know a lot of Christians who've never heard about these councils and who don't know the history within their own church. And so this, this is some, a chance for me to share a little bit of that knowledge. <laughs> and I apologize if I go off, but I did go to school for eight years for this. So it's, it's one of my uh, passions, but yeah, so this is, this is a big deal. Again, they're sitting down and they're being like, we've got all these different interpretations, all these different ideas. You guys need to start figuring this out. Another fun little piece of trivia about this first council, the Council of Nicaea, is uh, there's, and again, this hasn't necessarily been substantiated. This is a, a myth within the, the Catholic and Orthodox churches, but this is the first mention of St. Nicholas, and he is reported to have slapped Arius, um, <laughs> like during the council. <laughs> Which I think is funny. You think about so like he's gotten a lot nicer over the legends. Jolly old Saint Nicholas just going up and just dropping somebody with a pounder to the face. Just man, that's a good image. I like that image. Moving on, uh, uh, quite a bit actually. We're going to go all the way forward to three seventy six, about fifty years later, and the Visigoths fleeing the Huns are allowed. And this is me making air quotations allowed to cross the Danube into the Roman Empire. So this is significant because while quote-unquote barbarians had been admitted into the empire previously, they were forced to assimilate. You know, it didn't matter necessarily what ethnic background they came from. It didn't matter what language they spoke or whatever. They were required to become Roman citizens and, and, and everything that that entailed. This is one of the first instances of that not occurring, of you have a, a large ethnic group, a whole tribe that, that crosses into the empire in its entirety without forced assimilation. I'm sorry, I was going to say that then of itself is kind of a big deal. What were you going to say, sir? I was going to say partly they just didn't have a choice. There was just too many of them. They were stretched too thin at this point. And uh, right. the Gallic regions, as it was called, were not a major interest point to the Empire. It had been centuries since they had tried to conquer anything else other than what they already controlled. And it tended to be more trouble than it was worth. So when a bunch of these tribesmen showed up saying hey we're coming across and we're going to do it it was kind of easier for rome at this point who's feeling its age a little bit to be like yeah okay whatever and basically tried to bring them in and set them up as a client kingdom within rome itself now again i, I would like thumbs it alluded to part of the reason that they did this was because the roman army itself at this time just didn't have the numbers in that particular area in order to deal with it if they had wanted a, a military response 
in this particular case, it wouldn't have been possible just in terms of the sheer number of people who are attempting to, to cross into the empire and also under, under a peaceful guise, you know, they're not coming under a, under a invading banner. They're trying to escape the Huns. And so, you know, Rome made a decision here, uh, a decision that it kind of had to make. But again, this is significant because in only two years later, in 378, at the Battle of Adrianople, which we will go over. There's actually uh, a few battles that we're going to only talk about briefly during this timeline uh, because we intend on going over them over the course of this next season. Uh, but Adrianople, you have the Romans defeated by those same Visigoths um, and Emperor Valens dead. That's and this huge. is very significant. That's huge, huge. Because emperors don't die on the battlefield. Like I, I, I'm, I'm struggling to think of another emperor who was killed in battle. Could you think of emperors one? Emperors are not really. Emperors are dying left and right at this stage. Like, I mean, we mentioned uh, Constantine. He lived for like 30 years, but he was remarkable. There were other times where you'd have three emperors in 10 years, but it was almost always political assassination. The idea of Rome going out and losing an emperor, that kind of stands alone in Roman history in a way that's not good. Right. And it shows the decline here. Again, in our in our next section, we're going to be talking about Rome at its height and Rome while it was declining. But what you're seeing here is that is that one of the symptoms of that slow decline, which is not just that was the Roman army defeated, but it allowed itself to be so out of position that its emperor was killed in the process. So this is this is very significant. I am hard pressed to think of a bigger loss for Rome since probably the founding of the empire, arguably. Word. Yeah, this was because again, not just in terms of like a loss of a battle, but like morale in terms like that you had an emperor who was killed by barbarians, no less, on the field of battle. Like that's like the the empire itself would have suffered a huge blow. And you have to remember, even during this time, even centuries after this time, being Roman was like if you were Roman, you were proud of being Roman. We're we're Romans. No barbarians gonna kill our emperor. Whoops, now they are. Except he did. <laughs> so yeah, big deal here. Again, kind of shows you the, the changing power structure within Rome itself. So immediately after Emperor Valens, you have Emperor Theodosius. And where Constantine the Great ended the persecution of Christians, uh, Theodosius kind of turns that back around on pagans. And he makes Christianity the official state religion of the Roman Empire and and bans paganism he he and and in, in, like starts persecuting pagans um and so this is this is another issue because and, and part of the reason this was done was purely political because if you think about these visigoths who had just killed emperor valens pagans uh you know the suebi the vandals the allen the uh the different gauls the britons these are all pagans and so one of the ways that rome is trying to distinguish itself from these people and and kind of show its might even more is to have this this religion of its own and but but in doing so this agitates the situation that's already occurring as you can probably tell you know the visigoths defeated them in battle that that kind of shows you that there was a deteriorating state uh between the two uh diplomatic powers uh, this only makes it worse well and even just beyond that there is you know rome Early Romans would uh, argue that they had, that they could trace their lineage back to demigods, which meant that they could trace their lineage back to Jupiter in a lot of cases. Like, the Roman gods, I mean, we still talk about them today. They were just a part of everyday life, and Rome has changed so much in such a short amount of time. I mean, 
the Constantine is the persecution of the Christians in like 306. This is, we're now up to what, 378? Between 378 and 395, yeah. So 80 years have passed and the religion of of Rome has completely shifted. Uh, it pulled up a complete 180 in a lot of ways, yeah. And we will never see the Roman gods worshipped the same way again. Nope. Nope, that's true. Yeah, and there was a lot of art that was destroyed during this time as well. Uh, and so, yeah, this was, this was a, a, again, a huge shift, and it shows the growing power of Christianity. Again, only a only hundred years previous, Christians were persecuted in the hundreds, in the thousands, whereas now they, you are expected to be a Christian if you are within the Roman Empire. So that's, I mean, I, I, that's so fast in terms of uh, history and in terms of trying to, trying to wrap our heads around that in terms of, of nowadays. It's just really hard. It's just really hard. When you think of major cultural shifts like that, especially in the ancient world where things did not change as quickly a lot of the time, because again, it might take months to get from one side of the empire to the other by way of horse. Um, I can think of maybe, maybe three or four other shifts that were as seismic as this. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so again, we, we just, I don't think we can possibly uh, drive home unless uh, uh, how big of a deal this was. Uh, hopefully you understand that. Yeah. And so during this time, you have your second ecumenical council. In 381, there's a second ecumenical council, the first council of Constantinople. And this is where they reaffirm the Trinity. So again, Christians nowadays take this idea of the Trinity as being sacrosanct is just being uh just like a part of christianity whether you, it's just assumed whether you come from catholicism or orthodoxy or most branches of, of protestant you know it's just assumed that you're going to be a trinitarian but you know at this time there were a lot of people who didn't believe in that who, who who didn't necessarily believe in the holy ghost or believed that christ was a prophet and not necessarily a part of god or that you know there wasn't three different aspects of God. There was only the one God and it was heresy to believe otherwise. Like there were all these different interpretations at the time. And so this is the next big question that they cleared up at this council is they, is they kind of reaffirmed this idea of the Trinity. And so again, that, that Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Ghost is something we take for granted these days, but uh, you know, that was something that had to be hammered out over, you know, like a century worth of arguing over it, <laughs> as you can see. And it wasn't over. Again, this was something that, that continues to be a, a, a question in Christianity. It's just kind of one of those things that we assume is orthodoxy now, though. So this is where that empire splits. So now we get into a 395. Emperor Theodosius dies, and the empire splits permanently into a West and an Eastern Roman Empire. Uh, now, again, like Thumb said, they both still refer to themselves as Roman. Um, but they just are under different leadership. What's interesting is I was reading about this. A lot of them considered themselves still one empire. Like it wasn't like we're Roman and they're a different empire that we're unconnected to, but are also Roman. It's no, we're the Roman empire. They're just the Western half. We're the Eastern half. We have our own emperors, but yeah, we're still the same empire. Uh, it, it is a kind of duality of thought that kind of, in some ways it's a little hard for me to wrap my head around it is interesting you you think that uh because again it wasn't the people though it wasn't like you had the eastern half of the empire rebelled against the western half in order to gain independence or or one way or the other it was just the empire was so large and unmanageable that they just decided to split so like the but the people were like nah we're all still roman you know no big deal whatever yeah it, it wasn't a big change for them it's interesting the idea they came up with of how who's going to be emperor in these various things. 
they did not the idea was well thought out and it did not last long because it was way too complicated to last each side had this always makes me think of like the sith rule of two each side had two emperors augustus and caesar the augustus would be like the sith master like i am in charge i am the roman emperor the caesar would be their apprentice basically like i will be the next augustus and then i will pick a caesar for me i'm second in command i am heir to the throne uh the flaw in this plan is very 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 obvious that caesar is going to want to be augustus sooner than augustus wants to pass it over yeah and if that one dude just happens to die then i become caesar so I don't remember if there were attempted assassinations or if there was concern over, oh man, that guy might want to assassinate me. I know both things kind of came up, uh, but this this concept falls apart within within like two generations. And they'll try and bring it back every once in a while, but they don't. It really quickly becomes Western Emperor, Eastern Emperor. Yep. Yep. And... Uh... But like we said, that that's largely an administrative thing for the people on the ground. It wouldn't have been that much of a difference. You still have Latin as your lingua, lingua franca. You know, they're still tra trading the same currencies and that sort of thing, at least for the time being. Yeah, yeah, it, it's... But but again, politically speaking, the empire is never whole again. It's been split a few times up till this point, but this is the very final split. It will never actually be whole again after this point. Much like uh, Christianity becoming a major religion and giving in on that, this is another huge seismic shift of the Empire revealing some of how shaky it's becoming. And how, it, yeah, how, how, how much the decline is actually affecting it, no doubt. And so uh, also part of this decline you have in 406, uh, the eastern frontier of the Western Roman Empire collapses. And this is your Suebi, Alan, and Vandal tribes all coming in uh, for similar reasons as to why the Visigoths did. Uh, they're all fleeing the Huns. You know, you have this 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 uh, steppe presence establishing an empire across Eastern and Central Europe at this time. And uh, you have all these tribes trying to get the heck out of the way because they don't want to be under the Huns. And so they, they come streaming across the border. And again, Rome does not have the power to stop them, does not have the legions or the, uh, or the, the chutzpah with its neighbors in order to keep this from happening. And again, an empire that, that is unable to defend its own borders will not be an empire for very long. So we get another uh, dude kind of uh, trying to consolidate some of this. Uh, Constantine III in 407. So Constantine III was a Roman general who proclaimed himself emperor. Uh, the name implies that he was, you know, related, but uh, he, he probably just a dude who was like, nope, I'm emperor now. This is a pretty common thing to do. You know, oh, I am. I mean, you see it with popes today. Oh, I'm Pope john paul the fourth that doesn't mean that john paul the third was my dad but that i have you know chosen this pope name or in this case i have chosen this emperor name and so he led uh, most of the legions out of britain and into gaul effectively withdrawing from britain uh britain had been uh, part of the roman empire for what 300 or 200 years at this point two or 300 years well let's see caesar like you know render unto caesar what is caesar's caesar uh, founder of the Roman Empire, was, I believe, the first Roman to push into Britain in any real sort of form. So at the very least, Britain has been dealing with Rome, and, you know, I think some of the early conquers from it happened then, for like 400 years at this point, 450 years. 
Yeah, so this is this is uh, this is a huge move for them. Again, they're admitting that they cannot occupy the amount of area that they have under their control, and they're kind of re- like bringing in their borders in order to to protect themselves from this barbarian onslaught that's occurring. And I, I use barbarian. I, I please don't take it to mean that I'm trying to uh, dehumanize the um, non-Roman elements of this story. The word barbarian comes from the word barbarus in Latin, which just means foreigner. It just means the other. And so when they talked about barbarians, it wasn't with the connotation that we have nowadays of them necessarily being like badly clothed and dressed, speaking different language and just, you know, like we think of a barbarian. It literally just meant foreigner. No, a lot of that would have come from some of the romanticization of Rome. The more you romanticize them as civilized, the more their term for others is going to become less civilized and start to become kind of gross in its connotations. And also the, the, the transition between classical Latin and vulgar Latin that's spoken in the church. But, you know, that's a, that's a uh, topic for another time. We should mention here before we, you know, dive into the rest of this, of how big this is for Britain. I mean, we mentioned they've been around forever, but Britain goes from part of an empire that stretched across three continents. There would be people from Africa living in Britain 2,000 years ago because of the Roman Empire. That collapses. Britain basically loses contact with the rest of the world for a little while. Uh, becomes an extremely insular, its own kind of thing. And honestly, if it wasn't for the church, it probably would have collapsed entirely. Yeah, yeah that's, 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 a, that's a good observation. The church was the, the, the glue that was kind of binding everything together, that was given, giving an idea, like a, a shared idea of, of uh, connection between uh, Romans at this time, yeah. Especially now that it was the, the state religion. Had been for a while. Well, and this would go on for over a thousand years, basically. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, so yeah, this is huge. Uh, they withdraw from Britain. Um, three years later in 410, Rome is sacked by King Alaric of the Visigoths. So the Visigoths uh, managed to beat Rome at uh, Adrianople and kill an emperor. And now they have sacked Rome itself. Which again didn't happen that much in history, and even though even though Rome is not the necessarily the, the the capital of the the greater empire at this point, Constantinople. Even if we're talking about the two separate sides of the like the western and eastern, Constantinople is the mo- the more important of these capitals at this point. It is still a huge and debilitating loss uh, in order to to get smacked like this in Rome itself, sacred Rome. Politically, not a huge deal. Morally and emotionally, this is this traumatized the rest of the empire for the rest of its existence. Both of the empires. Rome hadn't been a capital for something like a century at this point, as we said. But as I said, everyone is still, we are Romans. And now Rome just got sacked. Rome hasn't been sacked in something like 500 years. It had been a while. Yeah. It had been before the Empire, back during the Republic. So this was a blow. I mean, other Romans had taken over Rome. That's fine, whatever. We're Romans. We're, like, fighting amongst ourselves. But someone else coming in is just... Just mind... It was mind-melting to these people. Exactly. Exactly. Sorry, there's a dog barking outside my shed. I don't know why there's a dog barking outside my shed at 11 o'clock at night, but there is a dog barking outside my, uh, my office. It, it's fighting ghosts. Yeah. Fighting ghosts. 
Sure. <laughs> That's my theory when animals act crazy. That's all. I think it's, <laughs> it's disturbing the sleep of my, my housemates is more what it's doing, but I digress. Um, but yeah, so this is huge. Uh, Rome gets sacked. Uh, this is not something, again, uh, we were talking about the slow decay of the military. You've got the, you know, their, their borders become porous and then are basically don't exist whatsoever. And then here you have Rome itself, uh, becoming endangered and sacked as well. So like you just have this slow erosion of military power in the area to which point that it just wasn't really worth much at all. This is the first time that a thing happens that Rome couldn't just kind of pretend it was its own decision. Like, oh, we let the Visigoths in. Here's these reasons why we let them do it. We're just being nice to them, like letting them, or like, oh, we're splitting the empire. Yep, yep, we're just, it'll make things easier. Like, it's still, then like, oh, whoop, they just beat us up and, you know, sacked our city. Like, that was not our call. Right, right, right. So yeah, these are, these are, this is, uh, it's a big deal. So a year later, uh, in 411, the Suebi, and remember, this is one of the tribes that we mentioned uh, kind of crossing en masse in 406, uh, they established the first independent Christian kingdom of Western Europe, and this is Galicia. And again, this is, this is a big uh, issue because, again, while there were different groups operating in Western Europe at the time, and while there were, there were, there were different threats to Roman power, you had this uh, tribal group that set up a state in direct defiance, like in Roman lands. Being like, oh, nope, this is where we are now, and you can't do anything about it, and and setting up their own independent state. Um, now, they had been sufficiently Romanized at this point in order to be Christian, so it's the first ind- independent Christian nation of Western Europe. That's actually kind of another big change, because before this, the way they had dealt with the rise of Christian is, you know, Christian, Rome, same thing. This is the first time Christians are doing it without Rome's authority basically well again you had armenia in 301 but that was kind of a that was kind of a one-off until the empires got a hold of it um but yeah this is like you say this is a big deal like you uh, this is a kind of a show again of the the uh, proliferation of christianity and and the kind of cross-cultural power it had at this time because remember when christianity first came to be it was a you know it was a a a a jewish uh, phenomenon and then it became a a Levant phenomenon, and then it became a Roman phenomenon. And now it is a phenomenon that is extending outside of the Roman Empire to people who were con- previously considered barbaric. So yeah, again, this is, this, is a, this is huge in terms of the proliferation of it. Around the same time in 413, St. Augustine begins to write The City of God. Uh, this is one of his most uh, famous works, and it kind of details the differences between Rome uh, under the pagans and Rome under the Christians. Now, uh, the way he writes it is just a scathing review of pagan Rome that absolutely blows out of proportion uh, a lot of the early Roman policies, but it also very uh, succinctly points out the flaws of those Roman empires and and kind of the the moral failings that they had and and kind of points to how Christianity could fix those things. Not saying that it always did, not saying that Christian rulers have always been just, but just the ways that that it it could be better underneath Christianity. It, it played up the more salacious parts of Rome so we could talk about uh, why his version was better, but also had some points to it. And this was one of your very first texts that you see where you get a very heavy crossover between a political and religious conversation uh, regarding Rome. Uh, because again, when we, we, when you talked about Rome in most other times, especially classical Rome, even by the Christians was still being very much romanticized. Like they, they looked at the early days of their empire and even the Christians would look back and say, ah, those were the days. Uh, St. Augustine was one of the first ones, and this was very controversial at the time, uh, to come right out and say, nope, 
I uh, don't like anything about the early Roman Empire and, and really took a critical stance on the issue. And, and the fact that he wasn't immediately executed for it says uh, something about the changing dynamic uh, within the empire itself. At this point, anytime we tell you a new thing, it's an, uh, we can kind of just assume, oh man, this is another sign of how bad things were getting. Or or just how much they're changing. Because in terms of like Christianity, like some of this stuff is is was good for Christianity, but like obviously the decline of Rome. How bad they were getting for Rome. Yeah, yes, yeah no doubt. So, and and uh, so for, we're going to flash forward uh, uh, several years and go to 431. We have your third ecumenical council, the first council of Ephesus. And this is where they uphold the title Mother of God. Uh, so if you come from the particularly the Orthodox or the Catholic traditions, you're going to hear uh, Mary, uh, the, the, the mother of Jesus, referred to as the Mother of God. Uh, up until this point, that, again, that was a disputed title. Uh, there were a few people who said that that was kind of heretical and was kind of setting up a polytheist system, uh, in, implying that there was a divinity outside of the Trinity and just this whole blah, 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 blah. And eventually, of course, they decided that, yes, uh, Mary occupies a special place in the Pantheon and she has this title, Mother of God. She is not a God in of herself, but she is the Mother of God. Again, a lot of people talked for a lot of times about these specific wordings. This is one of the first times I've heard of a religion going that direction. Like, usually, like, oh, this god had a kid. They may or may not be a god or a demigod or something in between. I, I can't think of many other religions where uh, a human had a child that became a god on its... I'm not sure if I'm explaining that right. Well, no, I, yeah, no, I, 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 I see your point that you're saying. No, that's and that's true, and and I mean, in a lot of ways, Christianity was very a kind of a new idea to the world, like it had evolved from the monotheistic tradition of Ju Judaism, but took on its its own uh, spirit very quickly. And again, this to me is kind of the in, the increasing signs of the Romanization of Christianity, because again, in early Christianity, you had this just this this very broad, very uh, open idea, like all these different sects that were all worshiping in their own same way. But like here, you have this this need to canonize it, to to put it down into law. And this is because, again, when you when you see that Constantine makes it into a state religion, state religions need laws because they're a part of the state. And so that's when you start to see these these councils kind of coming in. So this is this is the idea of that that uh, the Romanization of Christianity as well, and in terms of some of these titles in the same way. So back to our friends, the Vandals. We haven't talked about them in a second. Uh, in 439, the Vandals conquer Carthage. So Carthage, of course, if you remember from the Punic Wars, was Rome's old nemesis that then became one of the protectorates uh, under Rome and the kind of the seat of the power that Rome had in Africa. Like, of course, you had Egypt, but between Egypt and Carthage, that's how they controlled Africa. And so when the Vandals get far enough south in order to conquer Carthage, that's a big deal. Again, we, we've been saying that a lot. We were going to say that's a big deal. That's a game changer a lot, but that's because they are. <laughs> I can't, I can't think of an earlier time in history where a European, and I mean like not even Greek, but like deeply European country or like people get that far into Africa. Like, yeah, I mean, Greeks were European, but they're on the Mediterranean. They're right there. This is... The Vandals had to go a ways to get there. Like if the Gauls got down there. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And so, again, this is also, again, we're, we're showing that the, the, the borders in the Roman Empire no longer have any sort of meaning. Uh, there's, there's barbarian groups that are running ad nauseum all over the place, and uh, they get as far as Carthage. And this effectively ends Rome's control over Africa. After this point, they have a really hard time holding on to that aspect of their, of their empire. 
In 451, our fourth ecumenical council, the Council of Chalcedon, establishes Christ as one person with two natures. Again, there was a huge debate over this, whether Christ was uh, fully man and wasn't spirit at all, whether or not he was a fully spiritual manifestation and not a man at all, whether or not he was man and spirit half and half, or what they ended up finally deciding on was he was fully man and fully spirit simultaneously, one person with two natures and they just chalked it up to a divine mystery he's both don't ask questions we can't get it yep and again it was to clear up this 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 ongoing question again we got you know got four centuries worth of uh izzy isney going on and and so they were this was one of those moments where they where they cleared that up but again i, I think this is interesting especially if you're a christian nowadays to kind of think about what christianity looked like before all these councils also in 451, big year, uh, the Huns defeated the Roman or are defeated by the Romans and Visigoths at the Battle of Shalom. Uh, so this was under Flavius Aetius. Uh, and he was a guy who was trying to revive the military spirit of Rome. He was trying to institute a series. He wasn't the emperor at the time, but he was a, a commander who was attempting to institute a series of revivals and reforms to kind of get the army and get the state back to where it was in the early imperial period. But the fact that the Visigoths, you see the Romans and the Visigoths defeat the Huns here, oh, it's one of those, the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of scenarios. Like the Visigoths and the Romans are like, hey, we're, we're not buds necessarily. Like we've got some issues that maybe need to be resolved, but uh, these Huns are a bigger issue. Can we, can we just put aside our issues and chat about this Hun thing for a second? And I mean, remember 500 years before this, the Roman legions were unbeatable. Right, the, the the most impressive force that the, the world had seen at that time, no doubt. There was, I mean, maybe if in the, like, kind of imaginary matchups of, like, how would some of the Chinese groups of the time gone up against the Roman soldiers, but anyone Rome met at the era, it beat. At least through attrition, and this time, this is one of the, uh, the fact that they had to go to the Visigoths. Is it the Goths or the Visigoths? Sorry. V- Visigoths. Visigoths. The Visigoths, who sacked Rome not that long ago, and be like, help me out here. Oh, that's big. And so again, like we were saying, uh, this is another sign of Roman decline. Not only have are, are they relying on a heavily mercenary force at this time, but they are partnering with other groups in order to make their invasions possible. So again, big deal. The next year, in 452, we have another really big year because two landmark things of our story take place. The first one is the metropolis, excuse me, of Aquilia is destroyed by Attila the Hun. That's right. Attila has entered the scene, you know, the the greatest of the Huns, the the man under which the Hun Empire would achieve its greatest heights. Yeah, it comes in. And so Aquilia is huge. Think about something like London or New York City in terms of like a cultural hub and also just a, a huge place, a huge place that was uh, had multiple suburbs and all this sort of thing just just destroyed by Attila. And so at this point, everybody in the Roman Empire is really worried about this. There's there's not a whole lot that can be done. That same year, uh, Attila starts to get really close to Rome. And and based on what he's done, again, some of the other groups that have sacked Rome, you know, they've they've taken it and they've taken the political seat, but they've left the architecture and a lot of the the like the artwork and stuff intact. Again, they'll, they'll take a few statues back to their home cities or whatever, but there isn't a whole lot of rampant destruction. They're like, give me your gold. We're going to knock down your doors. Right, right. Whatever. And then we'll, we'll sit in your big chair. But the Huns were known for their just complete destruction of places. Just like, just burn it to the ground. 
uh, sort of mentality. And they did not want this to happen to Rome uh, because not only was Rome still just like a, a symbolic and spiritual seat of a, of a dying empire, but it was also a, a place of learning, a place of art, a place of, of buildings and, and, and history and all these things. And so they did not want it destroyed. It's roughly a thousand years of history at this point. Like, and so that same year, P Pope Leo I meets with Attila in person and convinces him not to sack Rome. Now I want to go over that one more time because that is very significant. Pope Leo I meets with Attila in person and successfully convinces him not to sack Rome. This is not an emperor. This is not a general. This is not a state diplomat. This is a pope, somebody who is separate from the state apparatus, meeting with somebody, and it is being respected. Again, we're talking 400 or 150 years before this, Christians uh, didn't have a, a safe place to rest their heads. They were being persecuted all across the empire. They didn't have legitimacy. They didn't have a voice. And here you have the leader of the Christians uh, conversing with this, this uh, incredible commander, this, this uh, incredibly successful commander, and convincing him not to do the thing he wants to do. That's just, oh my God, that's scary. Uh, yeah, at, at this point, the church is more powerful than Rome can ever hope to be. And will remain so for a very long time, for like a thousand years, if not more. You know, I don't know much about Attila. I've always, I've meant to read more about him. He is, just deserves a little special shout out here. He is the most amazing military commander to come out of the Asiatic steppes until Genghis Khan. Like, he is one of the most impressive, terrifying, probably terrible men in history. But is incredible and deserves so much praise at the same time. When I say terrible, I mean a lot of people died because of him. Like, that's not... He wasn't necessarily special for his time in terms of uh, what we would now call collateral damage, but uh, that's not necessarily to say that he was a saint by any means. But he was real good at what he did. Right. Right. And that was destroy things <laughs> and make an empire. <laughs> but unfortunately, as with a lot of these empires... When death finally finds Attila, the next year in 453, the Hunnic Empire divides and it will not be the same ever again. It will never rise to those same heights. Uh, it's divided amongst his sons and some of his other, uh, like, not, not suitor isn't the word I'm looking for. What am I looking for? Um, successors. His successors and his sons, but they, they kind of squabble amongst one another and they're never able to unite in the same way. This is pretty common of empires. Yeah. This is very common of empires. You have like a, a central power that is able to let that empire rise, but there, there isn't the infrastructure to support it or the support of the people to support it. And so it, it falls. Again, these long lasting empires that we talk about, like Rome or China, they're not very common in the scope of history. Like if you think about Alexander, amazing commander, made this vast empire in a very short period of time, uh, falls apart after he dies. Didn't last 10 years. Yeah. The Mongols splits within a couple of generations. I think they last like two or three great cons, but still, I mean, it's not many. It especially happens with these empires when they grow that big that fast. Right. And like Rome grew at lightning speed, but it already had the, the setup. And you're just like, well, I'm conquering a thing now. The person who comes next often doesn't have that same drive. Yeah, the same drive, the, the, the same charisma, the same. It's this like perfect cocktail for the scary conquerors. Right. And so again, while this is a, a good thing uh, for the Western world, I'm sure uh, by their 
by their estimation, this is the end of this, this first of these steppe empires that we're going to see. And then in, in uh, 454, fairly quickly afterwards, at the Battle of Nadao, which is another battle we hope to cover, the Germanic tribes break the yoke of the Hunnic Empire and, and kind of get their freedom again. And, and the Huns no longer rule over, uh, over the Germanic tribes. And, and what do the Germanic tribes do with that freedom? Well, our friend the Vandals, you remember the Vandals, they sack Rome. Again. Again. No, no, no. They haven't done it yet. The Visigoths did it last time. Oh, no. They sacked Carthage. Yep. I'm sorry. The Vandals went all the way down to Carthage, and then they came back to Rome. When we were saying earlier, a lot of stuff happens. We get it all confused. We were not kidding you guys. A lot of V names. <laughs> and these aren't oh, even yeah. all of them, either. <laughs> so in, in 470, uh, uh, 15 years later, Real Thamus, the king of the Britons, helps uh, the Romans in Brittany against the Visigoths. So this is very strange to think about. If you want to, If you think about America... In the wake of the Revolutionary War, deciding to help Britain in one of its wars, that would be about what we're going with here. Like that, like that would not have happened. You know, up until well after 1812, that Battle of 1812, uh, Britain and America were eyeing one another suspiciously. In some ways, it's even bigger than that because you know, America fought off the British. The Britons didn't fight out the Romans. They tried for a long time. Oh, they, no, for they not a lack of trying, point, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it got to the point that Rome, that they weren't worth Rome's time. These people who weren't worth Rome's time to protect has to now come in and save Rome. Uh, it's also just fun mention, the in the theoretical age of when King Arthur would have happened, if you like read a lot of the original texts, would be around this time in history. Now, all those stories are ahistorical as heck, but super worth reading. But the idea is that it was around four or five hundred AD. Actually, King Arthur, in one version of the story, conquers the Western Roman Empire. It's weird. It's a great story. Not important to this, but just to put a little bit of the um, age that we're in into perspective a little here. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, this is an age of myth and uh, like all sorts of things are happening. Yeah. There, there's a lot of things in Western culture that we can kind of point to this age about much like that. So within 10 years of this, though, Rome will have officially fallen. According to the historian's estimates, it either happens in 476 or 480. Uh, so in 476, the emperor Romulus Augustus is deposed by Odoacer. This is the traditional fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, so you have a, a non-noble person who is basically taking over the position and, and you know, knocking the emperor off his throne. And this is the final straw. Uh, nobody believes in the strength of the Roman Empire kind of after this point. And even, even though it kind of continued in name for a while, and in 480, uh, you have the assassination of Julius Nepos, uh, the last de jure emperor of the Western Romans. What does de jure mean? I don't actually know. Okay. De jure is like uh, in name, uh, like uh, oh, okay, yeah. Uh, it, more more accurately, this probably he would have been the the one of the first kings of Italy in terms of like the amount of size that he had and and the and the amount of power that he had and all that sort of thing. This is this is the beginning of the kingdom of Italy, but they were still calling themselves at the time the Roman Empire. Now the Eastern Roman Empire lasts for nearly a thousand years after this. Now they keep right on trucking. Now they uh, in history we call them by a different name, uh the Byzantines or the Byzantines, right? But like the thumbs pointed out to me earlier, they if we went back in time and tried to refer to them that way, they would have looked at us. That's that's a word that we've assigned to them as historians. 
a name that we've assigned to them as historians. But you'll find these a lot of times, especially if it's getting confusing because they're not the Roman Empire, but they are the Roman Empire. Oh, uh, they're the Byzantines. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, if we went there and we we're like, oh, you're the Byzantine Empire. Man, Rome fell. They'd be like, how dare you say Rome fell? We're Rome, son. Those Westerners, whatever. I don't care. We're the Romans. So there you have it, folks. That is our quote unquote brief chronology of the, the fall of the Roman Empire uh, between 301 and 480. And here in our, in our next section, we're going to kind of analyze this a little bit and talk about what contributed to the descent of Rome. Uh, before we finish up this section, though, Thumbs, is there any other thoughts you had? Not really. This is, this is one of those areas in history where it's really hard to read about. So if you didn't know much about it, uh, don't feel bad. But please do examine it more because it's so, so interesting and so much of what we think of, of, of the world today is affected by this specific period in time. This is, there are a few great fundamental shifts to the point that we call them like different ages in history. This is the end of the classical era. This is the end of antiquity. So Greece, Rome, whatever. This is the big, just about to be the beginning of the medieval era, which is so big a term that like, I say medieval, you automatically, you know what I'm thinking about. You think of like knights and castles and stuff. And while those might not have developed immediately, this is a new world after this. Rome had reigned for... That's why we're spending so much time on A thousand on. years in Italy. Exa yeah. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but without uh, further ado, I think it's about time that we analyze uh, some of the factors that contributed to the descent of Rome. define the descent of Rome, I think it's a good idea to start at where Rome was under its height. So we can kind of establish a comparison of, of what the two might look like. Again, to, to reiterate, there's a lot of material here that we are leaving out. There are whole 20, 30 page uh, dissertations and theses still written on the, the fall and decline of the Roman Empire. So please do not think that what we are providing here is a complete story or would even hold up against a dissertation panel. You can find 20, 30, 20 to 30 page writings about just each bullet point we have on this. Yes. Yes, you can. So um, again, uh, we're, we're pouring over this stuff pretty quickly, but we're going to hit the main points that, that we kind of think were the, the biggest contributing factors. So uh, let's talk about Rome under uh, Trajan which is when it was at its height. So this is between uh, 98 and 117 uh, AD. And so uh, what kind of defined this period was, if you look at the army, uh, it was, the soldiers were in large numbers. You had large numbers of trained, well-supplied, disciplined soldiers that were drawn from a growing population. And so not only were they plentiful, but they were also very good. Again, uh, as we've talked about, they were the best in the world at the time. Uh, at least in uh, conventional warfare. Again, there were some, some isolated incidents, incidents like with the Scythians and that sort of thing where the Roman tactics were kind of proven to have holes in them. But as a, a, a overall rule, Rome was the most powerful army at the time uh, here. And this is part of the reason. They had a comprehensive civil administration. 
thriving cities, and effective distribution of public finances. So again, we're, we're, um, I'm sorry, we're supposed to be trying to contrast this. So, so the late Roman Empire, this, this, the, the descent period that we're talking about, they didn't have these large numbers of well-trained, well-supplied, disciplined soldiers. They didn't receive that great of training. Uh, their supplies were kind of meh. And the discipline was also kind of meh. A lot of the Roman armies in the late and fall period were mercenary and auxiliary forces that were not trained or equipped to the same standards as a regular legion would be. Now, they always used lighter soldiers or uh, client kingdoms would send soldiers, but more often than not in the early days it would have been cavalry or archers. Rome was very obsessed with, we do heavy infantry, this is what we're good at, we're Romans, this is the best way to do it. Uh, we'll, we'll leave the archers and the cavalry for other people for the most part. So the fact that the legions weren't that anymore, that they weren't just bringing in mercenaries for or other people for cavalry, but to do the legions job, that's insane. That is... Yep, and it shows, again, how the, the power had kind of declined at that time. So again, uh, in this, this height, you have this comprehensive civil administration, your thriving cities, and a defective distribution of public finances. Uh, the exact opposite was true during the decline. Uh, the public administration, or the, the civil administration was lackluster at best. The cities themselves were, were not doing that great for a myriad of reasons. And then the, the public finances were being distributed to Rome. They were going to Rome itself to the coffers of the emperor, but in terms of like being distributed for the public to use, no, not so much. This means roads, bridges, all sorts of infrastructure stuff. In <laughs> infrastructure. So when we're talking about the literate elite of the uh, of the Roman Empire uh, at its height, they were united and had common roots in Roman and Greek culture. So they had common stories from which to, to pull from, uh, common lessons, uh, common uh, priorities that they were all working towards as a society. Whereas in the later stages, the, the illiterate elite were not united in this way. They were drawing from a bunch of different sources, uh, some of them which were fairly anti-Roman sources. And, and so you, you just did, you had a lot more argument amongst the intelligentsia than you had in those earlier uh, periods. Uh, the culture at that time also, at the height, promoted a knowledge of military and civil administration for prospective leaders. Now, by the time of the fall, your leaders didn't know their 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 butts from their elbows when it came to administration in a lot of ways because they had never really had to do it. They were just nobles who wanted to be emperor and so they became one. Uh, whereas in this earlier period, especially under Trajan, there, if you were to be, like if you were the, the, the son of an emperor and you were going to be emperor, you were raised in a very strict way in order to be worthy of that title. If you were somebody who earned it from outside of the imperial family, it was because you already had an effective eye for civil and military administration. And so it, it wasn't necessarily an entrenched part of the culture. It was just the, the way the culture was set up in that in order to do well politically, you had to prove yourself a capable administrator, not just at the city level, but also of an army. This meant that people who made it to a high level of leadership were already well-versed in those subjects. Um, whereas again, in the late empire, that, that was not the case. Again, you had people who were in charge who did not know what they were doing. And that, uh, that definitely hurts an empire, no doubt. This is kind of a double-edged sword of Roman had a problem of, uh, basically the military was in charge because especially during the Republic days, their two main people were also the military commanders. And this had become a problem for Rome because it meant that 
you were using either the military for political advantage or politics for military advantage. And they were like, well, that, that has gotten us into a bunch of trouble. We just need to separate those. And it led to the exact opposite problem of their people weren't properly educated anymore. Yep, yep, yep. And in terms of economy, though, uh, you know, under its height, there was a wide-ranging trade network providing diverse goods to even the most modest households. So, so even if you weren't one of the uh, like rich patrician class, you were still able to get a diverse uh, like foods and and like um, and and just goods from all over the empire. Uh, where again, as we were talking about, as Rome is descending slowly, its its different provinces are being chipped away, and of course, those those trade routes are being eroded. So the diversity of of the of of like food and that sort of thing is is dwindling by the year. Uh, at that time, at its height, Rome rewarded its centurions very well and expected them to be literate and respectable members of society. So the the centurions of ancient Rome uh, would have been more, a lot like our NCOs of today, so like your sergeants and that sort of thing, not officers, but let's face it, in charge of everything that happens in the army. So uh, under Trajan, uh, again, they were required to be literate. They were very well rewarded for their service. Uh, it was considered a position of honor. And so you had these centurions who are, who are not just middle management, but they're also the ones who reinforce loyalty in the legions. They're the ones who who whip discipline into the other soldiers. If your centurions are not up to snuff, your other soldiers are not going to be up, up to snuff. And so later on in, in late Rome, when the position of centurion is being given to people who may not be literate, uh, so if you think about passing orders from person to person, how are you supposed to do that if you're don't know what they say. And in, in, in terms of, uh, they, they weren't as well rewarded. And sometimes it was just straight up nepotism. Like, I like this person, they're going to be my centurion, not they deserve to be a centurion. So this was a huge issue as well. Uh, because again, you can imagine that a, a well-trained and motivated NCO case makes for a well-motivated and trained soldier. Involvement in city governance in these early periods was seen as a privilege. Um, it, it was something that was to be done well, and it was something that if you were selected for it or if it fell to you, it was something that, like, it was an honor to participate in. This had completely changed by the late stage time. I mean, the, the Senate had been completely dissolved at this point. They didn't have senators, period. And then at the local level, you know, city governance was like, well, why would I want to be a city governor when I could be emperor? So there was just this 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 lack of desire. Like, there's still a duty, still an obligation, but it wasn't seen as being a good thing anymore. There was a thing that I was reading that was talking about part of what made Rome so effective was this really obsessive, your own personal glory that you're fighting for. But in the Republic and in the early empire, you weren't just fighting for your own personal glory. You were also through your glory, making Rome better when it became much more. And especially as you know, some families would work for generations to get them to a place where they could be a senator. When you don't have that, when it's much more like the emperor or nothing, there's a lot less honor in those lower positions. So there's a lot less like for the good of Rome. And it becomes much more about your own personal aggrandizement as beyond I am aggrandizing myself to aggrandize my country. Well, if you think about like the mark of the early Roman legion, you know, senatus populusque Romanum, uh, for the Senate and the people of Rome, that was that was like the the driving chant behind, like their their it was like their motto for the longest time. But then once you get the the Senate being dissolved, like how are you supposed to say for the Senate and the people of Rome? Like that doesn't exist. Or the Emperor Forty K loves it, but otherwise it's a little sad. This this is indicative of the increasing selfishness of the ruling class of the Empire. 
And lastly, under its height, one of the other big strengths of the empire was that the polytheist cults that existed at that time were widely varied, but they were also very mutually tolerant. Because there were so many different manifestations of paganism at that time, everybody was more or less accepting of of all their neighbors and just being like, oh, these are my gods. Oh, those are your gods. That's neat. Whereas under the uh, institution of Christianity, you had that that tolerance, that diversity disappearing. And in, in place of it, you had a, a system of oppression uh, that kind of took its place. And that's, of course, much harder to maintain. If you're, if you're trying to maintain civil order and police people's thoughts, that's a lot more job, a lot more work <laughs> to have to do for the state. And not all successful. This uh, openness to polytheism and to multiple religions and cultures and stuff, it is not a requirement of great empires, but a lot of empires that were, this is the biggest empire we had ever seen to this point. The Achaemenids, the uh, Romans here, the Mongols later, that was, that tended to be a really big aspect of the really big successful empires of, sure, you can worship whoever you want it's not the rule but it's uh, often enough that i think it was worth mentioning yeah worship who you want just pay your taxes uh was has been a, a very uh a successful motto for a lot it's of historically pretty solid yep so those are the things that were working well for rome at its height but even at its height there were systemic weaknesses there were still things that would eventually contribute to the fall of rome and to its decline uh there's four big weaknesses that we want to go over the first one is that rome still had what we is what we classify as an early subsistence economy so what that means is that uh it was of course the economy is based off of subsistence things like grain or barleys and that sort of thing uh but the big issue with this is that they had no germ theory so molds and rots and bacteria and and all the other things that can that can befall a crop were, were very much all over rome and so rome was very much prone to famine you know if there was a, a something that was wiping out crops like it was an issue for, for more than just that province. They did not have a good way of stopping it. Uh, you have to remember, germ theory as we know of it today is only a few hundred years old. Yeah, not very old at all. Louis Pasteur. So this is, you know, centuries and centuries before that. If one thing went wrong, it went bad for everybody. Yep. Yep. And, and kind of in that same vein, not having germ theory, they had very poor hygiene. As a general rule, again, if you were dealing with like the ruling class, the patricians or your emperors, they might bathe more often. But when you're when you're talking about your 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 peons, you know, your plebes, as it were, they did not bathe that often. And they were often confined to doing so in public bathhouses. Nasty. <laughs> God, I just uh, I mean, better than not bathing. I was going to say bathing in a public bathhouse is pretty good if that's the option that you have. But uh God, I love my private showers. That's yeah. I I I I I like my my alone showers as well. And then sewage is also commonly disposed of in the streets. So you have a combination of poor hygiene and no sewage disposal to speak of, apart from just like oh, I'm just gonna slop it in the street. That's cool. Interesting thing I actually just learned, not just learned, but I learned recently. Uh, the first sewers were built, the first sewers in Britain were built by the Romans, but it wasn't so much about what to do with your waste, but more what to do with like rainwater. Yep. Yeah. Cause uh, the rainwater was a much bigger issue in, in Britain than it was in, <laughs> in Italy proper. So they're like, we'll build these tunnels, but throw your 
poop on the floor. That's right. So the, the third point here kind of stems from that, that last point when we were talking about poor hygiene and the sewage disposal. The third point is that there was a very high infant mortality rate and uh, like maternity uh, mortality rate uh, in Rome. You had widespread diarrheal diseases, uh, partially probably because of the poor sewage disposal. So these are things like cholera or dysentery. And then malaria, was also a huge problem in the Roman Empire, in Rome itself as well. And the, from the best we can tell, that's because the, a lot of the Roman ruling class enjoyed their like water features. And these water features were huge breeding grounds for mosquitoes, which would then go out and infect the city with malaria. So, woo! <laughs> that worked well, out and well. And then think about it. You have people from all across the world coming and going from this place at all times. So you're getting diseases from three different continents all coming into this small area and then breeding and then going elsewhere. And then Rome is in a pretty nice environment. It's warm. It's not like Britain wet, but it's not, you know, it's a humid. desert by any stretch it's of the humid. imagination. Yeah, it's humid. That is just a beautiful breeding ground if you're bacteria. Like that is ideal situations. And again, all these issues contribute to this fourth and and probably most taxing issue for at least half of our species, which is that women at this time, during the whole of the empire, needed to have six children apiece in order to maintain the population. Six children. That's so many kids. Apiece. Now, again, this is, we're not talking about households with six children in them, because we were talking about high infant mortality rates, all the diseases that were going around. And then of course, there's just the attrition of the, the constant warfare. Of course, these six kids aren't sticking around for long, but like, this was just the number of people that need to be having, not needed to survive, but just be having in order to maintain the population. That's a, that's, that's quite a bit of a strain on every household. I was reading about, I think, Victorian Britain and, you know, right before that, this is that centuries later, but with the idea of mortality rate, even then there was something like a 50% chance that most kids would die before they reached the age of 10. Right. Right. Like, and that, you know, without germ theory, that's true. A lot of places. There are so many things that can kill you if you don't have antibiotics or vaccines or yeah, whatever, whatever <laughs> or else vaccines have, yeah. or what modern medicine. So you know, you'll read and they're like, oh, that person had eight kids. And you're like, good God. But maybe three of those kids would make it to adulthood in a lot of cases. Yep. So this is, again, this is, uh, these are the issues. These are the, your systemic issues with Rome. And, and they were definitely, uh, they became big issues as time went on. So in, in 150, so this is... Say, if anything, they only ever got worse. Yeah. So not too long after Trajan, you start to have the first of these issues start up. And, and the biggest one is the climate shift that occurs from 150 onwards. And so this climate shift worsened the growing seasons in the Mediterranean, either it also led to some widespread famines. Uh, so if you're trying to maintain a large empire with a, a big stomach, that is not a good thing. And then you had the Antonine Plague uh, that was busy between uh, 165 and 180. And what this did was it really hurt the army. They think that it was probably smallpox. But what it did is it hit the army particularly hard and it really affected their ability to maintain border security. Now, again, they would, it would be another 200 years before it really, really, really started to break down. But this is around the time that you start to see an increase in the use of mercenary groups in result because they just, they just couldn't supply the bodies uh, from their own 
from their own people because of this plague. Yeah, we lost so many Romans, so I guess we'll pay you to come help out. One of the other big issues was that the state itself was constantly destabilized by civil wars as they were the main method of changing regimes. You know, if you wanted to have a new new family in power, there had to be a war in order to do it. And people have to fight wars. So that was destabilizing of itself. You have extreme wealth inequality. Now, this had existed from the earliest days of the empire itself, this extreme wealth inequality. But in these times, in the time of the descent, uh, that wealth inequality was more detrimental to your average citizen and the wealthy were more prone to acts of cruelty. So before they, they kind of felt betrothed or beholden to the people that they were ruling over. But at this time in history, like there were, there were, you know, executions and beatings in the street. Like there were, there was, there were no human rights to speak of. And the ruling class was definitely abusing uh, the, the lower class. And that led to a widespread civil unrest. Well, the wealth inequality is sort of, in some respects, how the Romans built their empire yeah. on accident. Yeah. Because they went, oh man, this wealth inequality is such a huge problem. Uh, let's, put everyone in the military and make that like a good money maker, like pay them decently there. And then whoops, we made this empire with all of these people. But when the military starts breaking down, there's a lot less options for uh, advancement, advancement under yeah. Roman society. So that was an issue on that same uh, idea of the military constant uh, frontier warfare had divided and reduced the legions uh, to a point that they were no longer effective in, in the way that they had been. More and more of the taxes went to the empire, to the emperor, and to the empire itself, to the to the coffers of Rome, rather to the lo the local governments. A huge part of Rome's uh, success when it was at its early imperial stage was that it had a, a decently high tax rate, but those taxes went straight back into the local economy, either building infrastructure, investing in farms, uh, whatever the case may be. At this time, though, all that money is traveling straight to the purse of the emperor, and you don't see it being returned to the local governments in order to improve them. And thusly, you had a massive reduction in public works projects like bridges, roads, you know, statues, monuments, all those things, and mostly just maintenance on the things that had come before. There's that old phrase, all roads lead to Rome. That's, I mean, all roads did because they just, our, our legions are going out, have them build some roads at the same time. Why not? Roman engineers are the, are the reason that that was the case. Yeah. And they were paid. <laughs> That's not true anymore. Bridges are falling apart. The aqueducts aren't working the same way. The the roads, just gone. And so all these things combined, as well as factors we haven't mentioned here. Again, this is a very simplified uh, report on the descent of Rome. But these things combined largely contributed to the destruction of the biggest empire on the planet. And I think this serves as a, as a word of warning uh, to, to all countries and all empires and even all realms, like even within like Belagarth and that sort of thing, do not think that you are too big or too good to fail because Rome thought the same thing. I mean, just in Stygia, we went at one point from like 25 people down to like three or four people for a summer. Yep. We had, and, and our descent could, like a lot of these factors were in place during that descent too. Yeah, you could trace down a lot of the problems that we had. And sometimes, in some cases, it was just people were busy. But uh, I have seen realms fail for significantly smaller things than this. Yeah, but if you've got all these issues going at the same time, yeah, that's uh, the mandate of heaven has been lost and the state is failed. 
So yeah, that's uh, that's the larger part of our episode. We're about to go into our last section to talk to you a little bit about Vegetius. But before we do that, Thumbs, did you have anything else to add on the descent to Rome? I do not. All right, well, let's get into our last section on Vegetius himself. perfectly timed, but uh, we've had some technical difficulties between the pause of that part of the episode and the intro of this part of the episode, and uh, I'm going to cover this one for you. If it's a little scattered, forgive me, I'm used to Malark being the main talky talk guy here, but we'll get through this together. So we're going to talk a bit about who Publius Flavius Vegetius Renatus was, or just Vegetius, as we're going to refer to him from here on out. Real quick, I do not speak Latin, so if my pronunciations are off, it will just be like every other time I've tried to pronounce somebody's name over the course of this podcast. Vegetius, our writer, uh, was a citizen of the late Roman Empire around 430 to 435, they think, uh, AD or CE, I guess, Common Era. This would put it after the sacking of Rome, and he is commenting extremely heavily on, oh my god, Rome is falling apart around us, and I would like that to not happen. A important thing to consider during this is that he was a self-identified Christian, refers to himself as this. Again, it's a sign of how big Rome has changed in from the era he's talking about, where that would not have been a thing at all. It's worth noting that we don't have a whole lot of proof that Vegetius exists. Like, obviously someone wrote these stories, or this book, this treatise, but who that is, we have no other sources on Vegetius. A few others talking about his writing, but nothing on Vegetius. So he might have been a fiction. The book is dedicated to Theodosius, though it may have been written later to support a military revival under Adius, and then just they just said, "Oh, this is for we found this old writing, this old Vegetius writing, uh, from uh, the guy who would have backed Theodosius." Like it wasn't uncommon to pretend to make fake versions of writings to prove that your thing that you wanted to do was actually uh, we there, there's precedent for it. There is a good chance because of this, and just what little sources he would have had access to, uh, he was probably a senior court official of some kind. But even in a broken Rome, that could mean so many possible things. It's interesting, we have only one other book from Vegetius, as I said, and it is not about war. It is animal veterinary stuff. Which combined with some of the stuff that we're about to talk about here, it's thought that this guy probably had little to no military experience, and he probably wasn't a historian. Most of his work is a hodgepodge of previous sources. He lists several of them, including Cato the Elder, Cornelius Celsus, Frontinus, Paternus, uh, and the imperial constitutions of Augustus, Trajan, and Hadrian. 
this is a pretty common thing that happened a lot in the late Roman Empire. I mean, it happens throughout history. I mean, even what I'm doing sort of to an extent is the same thing. Of I'm looking at things that older people have said and been like, here's what I think about it. The difference is a lot of people don't really think Vegetius knew what he was talking about, that he was just kind of aping them. He seems to have really fallen for the romantic idea of what Rome used to be versus the worst possible look of what Rome could be. He'll mention in one point that no one's wearing a cuirass anymore, no one's wearing a breastplate, they're all just wearing chainmail, and there is no way that was true. Chainmail is great for a lot of things, but it didn't really, it doesn't do much against projectiles, doesn't do much against archery, so there's a good chance that there was still breastplates worn, it or a kiros worn. It might not have been as common as it was before, they might not have been as matching as much as they were before, but it is unlikely that just no one bothered to wear a kiros anymore. I do know one thing that come up is they didn't have to wear them always. Like, if they were walking, they didn't necessarily have to have the kiros on. Because they're really heavy and they're really uncomfortable. Also, chainmail had been a thing always in Rome. I mean, chain uh, it, it's impossible to make, before mass production like we have now, uh, 100,000 matching cuirasses. So chainmail would go underneath, it's good movement, it, it, it was just a useful thing to have. Also, it's really difficult to make, so it's still really impressive that they're using chainmail. So... If we know that he probably wasn't a historian, and he probably wasn't a military guy, why are we talking about this guy now? Why has he been so famous throughout all of history? And the answer is sort of that he's all we got. When it comes to military tactics on this level, Vegetius is about all we have when it comes to existent Roman literature. We have found a few things more within the more recent timeline than would have been available for years, but even that isn't really on this scale. I mean, we have his entire book about everything that he thinks is good and bad about the Roman military. That is uh, an amazing source. We don't have that for most... We don't have that for, like, the ancient Greeks. You know, we just have Herodotus telling us about it. But his is about the only book to survive... We had just talked about how the illiteracy has gotten so bad. Very few people were reading. Very few books were being protected, especially as the later uh, church had much less to do with a, a much darker opinion of early Rome. Most of these stories were just gone. But that meant that we stuck really hard onto Vegetius. Uh, I mean, William the Silent to Frederick the Great. I'm just stealing those names from Wikipedia, but I know a bunch of others bring it up. Even much more recent people are talking about Vegetius still. But I mean, Frederick, we just read his book. Machiavelli definitely mentions him. So this book influenced the last two books that we have covered. It is... Even if it's got some questionable sources, it is an extremely important book historically and a book for us. It does also, it kind of served as the basis of what seeds should be from the late antiquity era to the early medieval era. So it is an invaluable, invaluable resource.
Uh, it was largely written as an appeal for military reform, because as we said, by this point, the Empire is falling apart. And they're going, oh man, oh, if we just went with the older days, then, you know, where all the soldiers were two inches taller than everyone, not true, but he likes thoughts like that, uh, then obviously we can save ourselves. It's another reason why it's thought that it may have been written by a court official. And honestly, that's about all we have. Uh, as we said, we do not have much. The, the farther back that you go, the harder it is to get sources. The fact that we have this many sources is incredible. But I can tell you weird things that you know Machiavelli wrote about him doing. We don't have any of that for Vegetius. But with this, you have a better understanding of Vegetius, and you have a better understanding of the world that he theoretically lived in. So thank you for listening to our show today. Uh, I'm sure Malark is appreciative as well, but again, you'll hear him next time. He's all around. In the meantime, we would love it if you would like and subscribe to our podcast so you can catch us every two weeks. We're always here. We're always talking. The uh, internet is run on algorithms, and the more that we are in the algorithms, the more we will pop up, the more people will hear about us. It means liking. That means subscribing. That means uh, giving us reviews. We'd love good reviews, but we'd love honest reviews more than anything else. You can check us out at our website, taowargaming.com, or you can find us really anywhere where podcasts are. And of course, on our social media, we have our Instagram and Facebook, The Art of Wargaming. And of course, as we've mentioned before, we have our Patreon. You can also check out our sister shows over at earverm.com. Or, yeah, at earverm.com, we are part of the Earverm network. That is E A R V V Y R M. You can listen to me talk about nerd stuff over in General Nerdery, or you can listen to our buddy Tyler talk about, uh, and Danny, sorry, Tyler and Danny, that's rude, uh, over at Fried Squirms. Uh, in the meantime, I'm sure there's parts of this I'm missing. Love you. We'll make it up to you next time. I'm Thumbs. That's Malark, signing off.